the Magnus Podcast, episode 19, Wonder Seeking Wisdom with Dr. Tiffany Schubert. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Magnus Podcast. It's very good to have you with us. As we continue to bask in the great light of Quarantina, before we get into today's discussion with Dr. Tiffany Schubert, which is a great one, uh, some housekeeping notes for you. First, in episode 15 with Stephen Courtright, I, your host, said something uh, during the course of our conversation about humans being actualized as agent, I said. Uh, he gave me a funny look at the time, and I realized why I misspoke. I should have said as patient. In this context, we, we are definitely actualized as patient. I know that was at the top of your mind. I wanted to get it off my chest so I could sleep again at night. Mea culpa. Secondly, and more importantly, it is my honor to announce that our entire backlog of fellowship applicants has been processed. We got a bunch of them. And except for there, I think there's two at the time of this recording. So Chris M, let's see, Chris M from Oregon City, Oregon, and Reese from Western Australia, Western Australia. Uh, your applications came in right before I started taping this. So we're going to be processing those in short order. I, I got to say, uh, it has been surprising to see the sheer amount and quality of fellowship applications. We have applicants from, of course, from all of our endorsed institutions, such as Thomas Aquinas College, University of Dallas, St. Mary's Annual Program, Notre Dame, Hillsdale, etc. We also have applications, however, which I find interesting, from other colleges, uh, applications to the student fellowship consisting of graduates from the likes of Harvard, Yale, state colleges, uh, everywhere in between, I got Franciscan University, a few of those, uh, no college at all. So, and, and these applicants are from multiple age groups. I got to say, I think most of them are young adults, 20s and 30s, which is encouraging. But we are really aiming with this fellowship to cross pollinate the thirstiest minds in the world from all over the world. We even have these, you know, like I mentioned earlier, these international student fellows who have applied. So if you haven't yet applied for the fellowship, please do it now at magnusinstitute.org. Not only are we aiming to cross-pollinate these student fellows in their thirst for wisdom, but we have, and we can announce now also at magnusinstitute.org, a body of supreme and salubrious faculty. We're going to be teaching these courses our senior fellows are really second to none. They're accomplished academics in their own right who are going to be moonlighting for the Albertus Magnus Institute, teaching and facilitating these courses that consist in equal parts lecture and discussion. If you go to our website, you're going to see some names that you recognize. We're very proud to have partnered with who are going to be teaching these courses for you. In fact, I can announce uh, there are, I think, three classes up there that we're going to be launching as a pilot uh, cohort in the fall. Uh, one of them going to be taught by famed author Joseph Pierce on Shakespeare. So you can sign up for that class as soon as registration is open, and it will be open, I think, in the next week or two, I hope. Uh, we're going to cap each course at 24 fellows to sort of preserve this interactivity and organic seminar feel, intimacy of the class. These are going to fill up soon. So if you want to be in our first round of courses and you haven't yet signed up for the fellowship, please do it. All right. That's the housekeeping. Now, in today's episode, we're going back to beautiful Lander, Wyoming, to bring you a conversation with a deeply perspicacious faculty member of Wyoming Catholic College. It was really a joy to speak with. We're proud to say that she's also going to be moonlighting as a senior fellow teaching for the Albertus Magnus Institute. So if you're interested in taking a course with her one of these days, that's another great reason to become a fellow today. Her name is Dr. Tiffany Schubert, and we're discussing one of the funniest things about the Western canon. 
That is the Canterbury Tales. If you haven't read the Canterbury Tales, go do it. It's not a hard read. It's not a long read. Uh, Miller's Tale is what we're discussing in this episode in particular. But we're trying to hone on this idea um, of humor and its incarnational nature. Uh, If you've ever watched, for instance, Dave Chappelle, okay, great, great comedian, very insightful. You've heard something profoundly true when you listen to his comedy, but at the same time, much of your laughter might almost be held back by a blush. So the, the profundity is, is conveyed with this admixture of profanity. And what are we to make of this? Perhaps you uh, have a, a sort of uncomfortable response to it. Uh, what do you do? Uh, is any student of the Western canon scouring its content, its contents rather will find uh, there's really not a lot of puritanism in the, in the great Western tradition. In fact, this sort of humor exhibited by Chaucer in the Canterbury tales comes up in quite a few places. What do we make of it? Our, our modern world, however, is somehow either stuck on one side of the fence between Puritanism or I guess uh, pornography would be the only word for it. And is there, is there any middle ground here? Is there any takeaway to the profundity that is mixed with the profanity? Is there any upshot? So we, we have this tendency to be either overly scandalized uh, or overly fascinated when things are uniquely or strangely human. Uh, some, somehow, the one response that escapes us when we contemplate the less savory aspects of the human condition, unfortunately, is laughter. And laughter is very, very important to the cultivation of wonder, which in turn is very important to the cultivation of wisdom. So that's what we're talking about today. Uh, Geoffrey Chaucer, the 14th century poet and father of English literature, will make you blush. It, it might even scandalize you, but if it doesn't make you laugh, there's something wrong with you. Uh, so we're talking about this strange response of ours to the profound and the profane and its incarnational nature, as Dr. Schubert, I think, brilliantly calls it. She really is brilliant. I had a great time talking to her. We're discussing The Miller's Tale and many, many other things from uh, Newman to, let's see, what do we get into? Uh, lady authors like Jane Austen and Flannery O'Connor. I don't much care for Jane Austen. She likes Jane Austen. She's probably right. She's she's smarter than me. So a lot of good stuff discussed. Uh, and really, you're gonna be you're gonna be impressed by Dr. Schubert. I know you are. Uh, pardon the the sirens that drove by a couple times when the, when we were there. Though I've noticed as I'm kind of re-listening to this recording that. When the sirens are driving by our little our little spot in uh, Lander, Wyoming, there where we tape this, uh, she's making a brilliant point. I think each time it's almost like this alarm to brilliance. So don't don't miss that. So without further ado, here is a very enjoyable conversation on wonder that leads to wisdom with the very wonderful and wise Dr. Tiffany Schubert. Please enjoy. So I'm interested in the the relationship between the world of medieval romance and the novel, which is often mm-hmm. overlooked. The novel is often treated as this genre of realism, um, but then that comes to be a problem when you look at the happy ending, because for so many people, happy ending is fake, it's wish fulfillment, it's yeah. kind of a dis- dangerous fantasy. But I think if we see the novel as coming from this older tradition, uh, it enriches our ability to read it. And I think that, I don't want to say all stories need to end happily, but that we need stories that do end happily for many reasons. So, so there's, there's epic tragedy, comedy, lyric, and then is the novel something new? What what is it? What is it? What is a novel? Is Don Quixote the first novel? Yeah. What do you think? Um, So... 
we actually have some Greek and Roman novels. Mm-hmm. So the novel, the novel is a pretty old genre, mm-hmm. but the modern, the modern novel yeah. as we have it does very much descend from Don Quixote. Yeah. But Don Quixote himself is responding to medieval romances. So these stories about knights and ladies uh, finding love or not finding love and fighting giants and and dragons. Uh, that is. That's the world out of which Don Quixote is coming and the world out of which the novel arises. And I think, yeah, the novel, the novel is kind of a grab bag. It has elements of the epic in it. Some, have, some, some argue that it is the epic. Right? The, the, the epic has continued, not in, not in verse, but in the novel. Um, is, is everything that has a happy ending a comedy? Yes, but not every comedy has a happy ending. Example. Maybe we could say. Um, let's see. Well, a satiric poem, let's say, like a lyric, a lyric poem that doesn't have a straightforward narrative uh, focus to it, but touches in on comedy itself is a part of the comic genre. So Horace sure. may be making yeah, yeah. fun okay. of somebody else. Mm-hmm. This Estrada. This Estrada, yeah. Mm-hmm. Although even even there, you could say that there might be something of a happy ending. It's true. Right in this Estrada. Except for the torches yeah. are still burning outside of the party when they're when they have they have peace, right? But then there's this looming mm-hmm. threat of war. Threat that's coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the place of the of the novel as as a genre in a liberal education? Because that's what you do here, right? Liberal education. Mm-hmm. That's right. So the novel gives us a, a rootedness in. I don't want to say the real, but in daily experience that a lot of the other genres don't. Mm-hmm. So the novel is, and here we are talking really about the modern novel. Yep. Right? So that, yeah, that kind of that thing that descends from Don Quixote. So what is the purpose of a novel? What place does the novel have in a great book's education? What's so great about a novel? One what of, makes a great novel? One of the things I think that's so great about the novel is its ability to combine all of the genres is the the epic quality, the tragic quality, the comic quality, and even the lyric quality that you find in the novel. So it gives us all of these different modes of being. Sometimes even in one in one novel, we get we get all of them there. Mm-hmm. And so and I think that that's a that adds a level of imaginative richness, mm-hmm. which is something that's really important for a liberal education. What is your favorite novel of all time? Or, other question, what do you think is the greatest novel ever written? Uh, so, my bias is for Jane Austen. Uh-huh. She's, my, she's my author, and, and I think that Emma is her greatest novel, and certainly one of the greatest novels out there. And one of the reasons I think it's so wonderful is that Austen, what Austen does is see that the, uh, the epic struggle to be virtuous, to be heroic, to be, uh, to be a, good, a good and noble person in a very confusing world, she sees how that plays out in our everyday life in the kinds of conversations that we have with people who are not themselves evil villains or epic heroes, but maybe just a little bit annoying to us. Mm-hmm. And how are we virtuous in, in those moments, in those situations? Do you think she does that better than Flannery O'Connor? Um, I do, yes, I do. She definitely uses more words. Than O'Connor? Mm-hmm. Yes, she does. Yes, she does. And O'Connor is so interested in that moment of dramatic confrontation yeah. between the the sinner and this at least offer of grace. But O'Connor doesn't do a lot with what happens after that moment. Mm-hmm. The What Austin does is give us characters who are confronted with these moments in which they realize that they have failed. They realize that they've erred. And where O'Connor might leave the story, might end the story there, uh, we, uh, 
asking us to kind of imagine what would happen. Austin shows us her characters processing through that in these moments of self-knowledge when they're reflecting on who they are and what they've done. Hmm. And then after that, we see them acting in a way and it's something of a transformed way in light of, right, in light of the knowledge that they've come to. So I think that in that sense of implementing the virtuous action in daily life, Austin does that better than almost anybody out there. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is a funny question. Don't take offense to it. Why do so few men appreciate Jane Austen? There are many, many women who are very excited about this stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, when men crack into it, there's like, there's a lot of other people's problems that just don't really uh, render themselves palatable uh, in a way that like Flannery O'Connor does, she just hits you with it, she makes you deal with it. Uh, what do you think? Or am I wrong? I mean, have you met plenty of men who love Jane Austen? Uh, so actually, actually, I have. It's kind of my... St- one of my standards for uh, for judging a person's character is I'm whether so or not sorry. they I'm whether or not they like. <laughs> so, I think part of the reason is that Austin has been often presented as this romantic author. Yeah, which she she is. So certainly, love is very central, and right. people falling in love, and men and women falling in love, is absolutely at the heart of what she's doing. But she's not. She's not a female romance novelist in in the sort of modern sense that we tend to think of, of a kind of sure. sickly sweet indulgence in it. Yeah, exactly. But she's sort of lumped in there and sometimes women's appreciation of her can be expressed that way. Okay. Be like, wow, right. Mr. Darcy is so dreamy. Yeah. Uh, and there's something to that. Uh, Austin is making very attractive characters. So so I think that's that's a big part of it. And I also think that 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 people don't really attend to the the question of virtue and of, of happiness that lies at the heart of what Austin is up to. She's in many ways Aristotelian. She's wondering about the nature, the nature mm. of virtue and the connection between virtue and, and happiness there. And I think that that's to me not a not an exclusively female concern, but a human concern. And Austin, Austin as an artist is conscious, intensely conscious of her own limitations, mm-hmm. and she sticks to her artistic principles. So she's not going to she's not going to describe something that she doesn't know that she hasn't had a lot of experience with. Yep. So she doesn't give us conversations between men by themselves, away from women. <laughs> That's true. Right. She sticks. She sticks to what she knows. Yeah. And I think actually she probably could have given us fantastic conversations between men. Sure. I think that she was capable of it, but she sticks to the observed world and the experienced world, part of the novel's project. Okay. Uh, let's talk about Chaucer. So what, so this, this is a, we're at, we're at a Catholic school filled with <laughs> many, many young, pious, wide-eyed Catholics in their angelic purity. And, what place would something like the Miller's Tale, which is a tale of lust, adultery, cuckery, flatulence, what place would this have in the formation, the, the, the total human formation of your students? I'm glad you used that word, angelic, because I think that part of what the Miller's Tale is doing is reminding us of the incarnation Mm. we sometimes tend to think i think especially those of us who are are fairly devout that we are angels not not in any uh, kind of straightforward actual actual wings kind of thing but uh pure intelligence Mm -hmm. a kind of uh, kind of loss of the material Mm -hmm. we lose and in doing so we lose sight of the incarnation and we lose sight that we are incarnate souls. And so the Miller's tale slaps us in the face with, with our own incarnational reality and not, and not all of the pretty parts or the, the, the neat kind of tidy parts or the pious parts yep. of the incarnation, but all of the, the messiness, the, the ickiness, uh, the hilarity of, of being incarnate creatures. Who, who should I be rooting for when I read the Miller's tale? Yeah. 
I root for Allison. Yeah. I I am totally uh, an Allison groupie. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in part because she's so alive. She's so vibrant. She's so desiring. And that's fairly unusual in in literature to have a woman uh, have, have that that kind of incarnational reality to a woman. Mm-hmm. As, as a lot of times, especially in the medieval world, you get these sort of an, angelic women. Yep. Who are not fully, not fully embodied. What is it about her that you think John the Carpenter wants? What is, what does he want out of her? Does he want a wife? Because there seems like something from the get go that's a little bit strange about what he wants in her. Yeah, he's 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 strangely uh, tender towards her. He I think he mm-hmm. kind of cares about her. I, I should qualify that tender in the sense of when he. When he finds out that the second flood is coming, Mm -hmm. he's concerned for her safety. One of his first thoughts is, oh, my leaf. But yet he's also keeping her in prison. He's not giving her, he's not giving her the freedom that would be proper and appropriate for, for uh, a healthy marriage. What struck me is, um, I think it's in in a Joseph Pieper book, but he says, the lustful man above all wants something for himself. Uh, is he's not really he's not he doesn't seem to be loving her on his own on her own terms she's obviously beautiful and young and you know he's insecure about you know his state and hers uh, but he uh, he doesn't seem to really love her the carpenter that is yeah and in that sense I'm not sure that anyone really loves anybody in the Miller's tale Right. We're not, we don't seem to be in a universe where that kind of love is on the table at all. That's true. Um, that, that's just sort of part of, part of the comedic world of the Miller's Tale. We're not in that kind of love. We're more in the world of delight in physical pleasure. Mm-hmm. And that's what Allison and Nicholas have. And she doesn't get that with, with John, part because of the age difference. So Chaucer's really at least. So do you think John is interested in look in in uh, <laughs> is is he rooting in a way in a perverted way like as a cuckold would basically want to watch you know his wife and the uh, and Nicholas have something there? I mean, is he is he he's definitely he seems to be almost permissive of it in a naive way. It's not like he's. Well, he's so, yeah, he is so naive. That seems to be his primary problem. It's yeah. a kind of naivete or a kind of a okay. foolishness. Right? He's just, he's a foolish man. And in comedy, the foolish man gets his comeuppance. Right. Uh, cleverness wins out. Mm-hmm. And so he's, yeah, he's, he's, he falls for the deceit. Um, and he, He falls for for uh, Nicholas's very clever kind of scholastic or uh, kind of <laughs> scholarly right. scholarly trick. So you've, right. you so you've also got the sort of yeah the simple foolish uh, tradesman versus the clever the clever Oxford student. So Nicholas is a is a sophist, right? I mean, he's, he's using <laughs> yeah. he's using right. this sort of knowledge of astronomy to convince him a flood is coming, and he buys it. But not for the sake of knowledge. He wants to. He wants to sleep with the carpenter's wife. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Nicholas is willing to use instrumentalize the intellect. Mm. He's not a particularly good student of the liberal arts, which is what he would have been studying at Oxford, yep. which is where he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is very interested in astronomy. We, we do know that, but that seems to be the main liberal art that he's interested in none of the other ones particularly uh, okay. enticing to him so what is it about the liberal arts that are in this sense properly useless and your students probably get this a lot right what are you going to do with that what are you going to do with that and as soon as you attempt to as you say instrumentalize the liberal arts you're doing something very uh, ugly like Nicholas Yeah, and, and in part that ugliness comes from the lack of a kind of breaking with, with human nature, that there's something in us that longs for the useless, for the playful, uh, for the to, to, 
a higher sense of that, of course, would be Peeper's leisure, mm-hmm. that, uh, the Sabbath. That there's something in us that, that is disposed towards that, that, mm-hmm. uh, that way of being. And the liberal arts are those, those arts that prepare us for that, that kind of disposition and give us, give us guidance in it. And so when we treat them as utilitarian, we're actually kind of doing this disservice to, to ourselves. We're, we're hurting ourselves. We're wounding ourselves. Mm-hmm. Perhaps even more than we do, you know, the, the arts. Mm-hmm. And that, that, uh, seems like, in another way to get at the Miller's tale a little bit is the thing about this idea of, of play, uh, or as Chaucer would say, gamma, this idea of game, that there is something playful, something like a game in, in this story and in the act of storytelling in general. The storytelling is not, can be utilitarian. We can use stories to get things and to make yeah. useful points, but it's not, by nature utilitarian we tell we tell stories uh out of delight and and joy Uh, we tell stories for their own sake so there's something liberal about the activity of storytelling and i think it's been kind of liberal even about a story like the miller's tale with all of its with all of its bodiness Uh, it's a the reading of the miller's tale is a fun and it's delightful experience. Oh, it is. Right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a liberal thing, to have that space where you are just simply delighting in uh, the excellence of Chaucer's craft and the ridiculousness of, of, yeah. of being an embodied human being. What do you make of the fate of Nicholas? That is, he, his play terminates in getting burned, literally. So the, so the Miller's Tale is actually, I think in the end, a kind of surprisingly just story. For all of its uh, endorsement, so to speak, of, of adultery or at least sort of sexual pleasure. And in the end, Nicholas gets punished, physically punished, right? He gets branded, he gets burnt uh, by, uh, by the iron poker in an attempt to deceive. Right? Or an attempt at least to pull one over on his rival, right. Absalom. Right? So in the act of deceit... He gets physically, physically punished and injured. So there's, there's a kind of rough justice at play there. Do you think it's interesting that he's punished for what he does to Absalom uh, uh, and not for what he does to the carpenter? Because that seems like that's the, the real injustice there. The carpenter's getting the short end of the stick. You know, he loses his wife uh, and, and he gets mocked, right? He's, he's the object of public ridicule. Which is, in this world, a kind of justice for his own folly. Yep. He, he was the one who married a young woman. And the miller tells us uh. he, he should have read his Cato and he should have known that that was a bad idea. Yep. So, so the, mill, uh, the miller, excuse me, the carpenter, is not an, he's not an innocent victim in this, in this story. He's the fool. He's the fool who's asking for to be for his folly to be taken advantage of and exposed and his justice is then to be thought a fool by by the whole town mm-hmm. so the fool the fool gains the reputation of the fool which he has been a fool all along do you get students who are scandalized by the uh you know the graphic humor involved here Yes. What's the response? What are they? What's what's your typical complaint against something like Chaucer? Sometimes it's yeah, it's the scandalized. Also, this past semester came up that there's a sort of childishness about this. Like this this type of humor might be appropriate for a four year old, right. but not not for a serious important <laughs> a serious author. Wyoming, yeah, exactly. Like yes, yes. Like our students or like Chaucer. Mm-hmm. Right? It's just it's not fitting. It's not appropriate for for the lofty uh, great books. Okay, how do you deal with that? So again, I think that that that, that comes from that angelic. Imagination, that sense that we are just floating minds mm-hmm. who apprehend reality uh, through abstract reflection. Mm-hmm. And part of understanding who we are as human beings is understanding our embodied nature. And so, and, and, and the Miller's Tale reminds us of it. I think that might be part 
of the reason that it's a little bit hard for us is that sometimes we're like offended by our own bodies. Yeah. We're shocked by our own embodiment. It seems to us kind of an outrage. How could I, this noble, uh, devout being capable of the greatest philosophical thoughts who is directed towards, you know, in the end towards the uh, beatific vision, how could I, have this absurd body that you know makes weird noises and yeah. smells funny and has to be taken care of constantly. And in many ways, that's that's the source of Lucifer's scandal, right? That God is going to take on one of these bodies, right. sharing our nature rather than His. Right? And it's and that act is both uh, the greatest sacrifice and also the greatest joke that there is. That the, the, that the div, that divinity itself would would come into humanity that eternity would be bound by time, right? If we're looking for that, the utter incongruity that's at the heart of every, of almost every joke, right? yeah. that's the incarnation. Which is why, I, I mean, the Bible we could say is a, is a tragic comedy, right? There's a, that's right. something good is happening to somebody who doesn't deserve it. It's us. That makes it a comedy. Something bad is happening to somebody who doesn't deserve it. And that's a tragedy. He's murdered. And that's that's one of the reasons that we need comedy, especially at a at a Christian school and from a Christian perspective, is that Christianity is that tragic comedy, uh, but ultimately the full comedy, right? mm-hmm. sort of the highest comedy that's out there. And so the comedies that we read are participating in that in that story and giving us a taste of of that story of of the final happiness towards which we all at the very least uh, aspire to yeah it, it gives us that not that not that comedy is trying to replace heaven with its own happy endings mm-hmm. so, sometimes that happens uh, i say someone like dickens might be might be sort of doing that um, mm. but that it gives us it it awakens our desire for that kind of happiness mm-hmm. and our desires are often so uh, lethargic, and, and, yeah. and, right? And I think we kind of need comedy to awaken that in us, and and then to just give us that joyous experience of full happiness is a kind of baptizing of the imagination. That's yeah. yeah so um, you know the crude hum, uh, the crude humor, for instance, that's in Chaucer, where you know you name it, Lysistrata. It won't be the first. It won't be no. the last. But culturally today. There is some humorous media that's also crude, and you know, as 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 Catholics, as Christians, we we, you know, I want to I want to watch Dave Chappelle, and there's something going on there, like there's something philosophically brilliant. He's he's rather educative, also rather crude. Uh, how should how should a pious person deal with something like this? So I was uh, looking at the, the screw tape letters, and Lewis makes this distinction between uh, jokes that involve crudity that are made for the sake of the joke. Mm. So for the sake of that, that ironic juxtaposition, sort of the, the reversal of expectations, uh, even I think maybe we could say, we could add that, that sense of revealing to us the ridiculousness of what it means to be in the body versus jokes, crude jokes that are told for the sake of crudity. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be crude, but then also to sort of awaken within us a kind of crude uh, response, a yeah. kind of titillation that, that can happen with the joke. Mm-hmm. And so some of it is discerning that, that difference there. Is this simply being told to to sorry, to lead us into, into lust, or is the joke told there because it's funny? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it makes us laugh, maybe makes us laugh at ourselves, which for a Christian is a really good thing to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's maybe one of the essence, uh, yeah, the essence of humility might be the ability to laugh at oneself. Oh, that's good. So so that that seems to me very Is there an etymological connection there between humor and humility? Oh. Gosh, that's a great question. I'm not sure. Me neither. Yeah. Hmm. I It'd be great if there so. was. Yeah, it would be. Yes, it would be. Well, that's good. So I can laugh at Dave Chappelle, even though he makes crude jokes. Even though he makes, yeah, that's right. I think so. Um, 
Chaucer does it, Shakespeare does it, Aristophanes does it, Milton does it, Dostoevsky does it, uh, Jane Austen does it, but Jane Austen does it. She does not. Uh, But but it's yeah, it's just it's this reoccurring human. Austen wasn't Catholic, right? Austen's not Catholic. No, she's Anglican. She's the daughter of an Anglican vicar. Uh, usually the the scandal at the body tends to be more on the Protestant side of things than the Catholic side of things. Would you agree with that? Since Protestants are more scandalized by uh, the body than Catholics are, is that mm-hmm. the question? At least in the know. Victorian sense, the, the puritanical sense. Yeah, there is a there's certainly a puritanical tradition mm-hmm. uh, that is uncomfortable with the body. Now that's that is coming after after Austin. Um, yeah, that's part of that kind of angelic uh, angelic imagination there. Mm-hmm. Now, and I think that that's I think that's probably fair in many ways to sort of see that uh, certainly in the new in in England and the United States as a, uh, a legacy of this, of the Puritan uh, rejection of, of that, which is body, or even in, you know, during the, uh, the English civil war and during the Commonwealth, you've got the, the closing down of the playhouses, right. And then drama becomes, you know, a drama, which was, which was a uh, really popular art form becomes really problematic when you get into, into the Puritans. Um, but of course, Shakespeare is not Catholic. Right? Shakespeare is coming in a Protestant world. One could argue. Right. Yeah. Um, right. Maybe he was a secret, a secret Catholic. Uh, it's quite possible. Yeah. Um, yeah. There, so there, there's that possibility there as well. Um, but I think that in the middle ages too, you've got this, got an ascetic tradition that has problems with with embodiment as well or at least can lead to problems with embodiment and so someone like say the wife of bath uh you know another probably chaucer's most famous character i think i take her to be responding to this monastic clerical tradition that is uh scornful towards marriage scornful towards towards women kind of scornful towards the embodiment that's involved in in all of that uh, and she is she's she embraces it she embraces marriage and many right, many many marriages um, yeah but I think that yeah she's kind of responding to that to that tradition so so I'd say yeah, perhaps it is at least right now a legacy of that, that's kind of Puritan uh, understanding but it's always a temptation. That's true. Yeah, it's always a temptation to deny the incarnation. Have you read John Paul II's Theology of the Body? No, I have not. Mm. I have not. Deals with a lot of this stuff. And I I think that it was a, it was a necessary corrective to some of the uh, early reflections on the body. Right? If you look at St. Augustine or, yeah. or even Aquinas, right? you'll see just this, this sort of this reflexive Platonism uh, which which tends to privilege the soul over the body and a kind of uh, a kind of dismissive attitude towards the body, and I don't think that's at the heart of Christianity, and I don't think it's heart of right, heart of, of Christ, and and this is not to say that Augustine you know, is shouldn't be uh, esteemed as he is, but he seems to be that's part of the intellectual environment that he's that he's that he's a part of and it does become a part of christianity for 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 a long time sure at the same time augustine is is clearly rejecting you know gnosticism and manicism right. yes he is yeah he is right so so i don't want to paint him uh too simplistically it's not that he's uh, yeah, he's not he's not a mannequin. He's trying to walk away from that. And yet there still seems to be this sort of lingering uh, influence of of Gnosticism or Manichaeism on him that it, that is passed down uh, in the tradition. And so then you do you, you do need you a corrective. sense that in Aquinas. There are moments in Aquinas. I mean, I think less so than Augustine. Mm-hmm. Less, okay. Much less so than Augustine. Uh, but still it's a while before we get a, a really robust theology of the body worked out. 
That's true. That's true. And I think that's a response yeah. to the to the times. And, and I think the church yeah. got that from John Paul II Second. when she needed it. That's right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, I think you could say, always there, always available to to Christians, but in terms of it being fully, fully revealed, it takes yeah. a long, it takes a while to sort of work it out. Mm-hmm. What kind of a student do you think would flourish at Wyoming Catholic? Well, we do like those pious, angelic students uh, quite a, quite a lot. I think a student who has that desire for uselessness uh, that we were, that we were referring to earlier that desire to, to sort of immerse themselves in the complexity of the, go of the liberal arts. Perfectly with their parents. I know that's, that's the right. Best elevator that's pitch. right. Do yeah, you, exactly. Do you want your son or daughter to be completely <laughs> useless? That's right. Come to Wyoming Catholic. Yeah, my favorite professor in undergrad used to tell us, he's like, I don't care, you know, if you end up on the streets in a cardboard box. What I care about is the state of your soul. And it's obviously a little hyperbolic. But there's something, there's something to being in an environment in which that's the more important thing. So not that the useful is denigrated. We don't want to, we don't want to become like Gnostic here, right? In in our response, the the useful is important, but it's not the most important. Yeah. And I mean, right, we could make the argument that the useless is what best prepares you for the useful. Say more. So, so John Henry Newman, bring another another uh, Catholic theologian here, talks about, and he makes this this claim in Idea of a University that knowledge is a good before it's a power. Hmm. So it's a good; it's a thing to be pursued for its own sake. Right? That, that's why it's a liberal uh, a liberal good, a thing that is the the object of liberal education being knowledge for its own sake. But he doesn't deny that it's a power. He's saying, yeah, it is a power. Knowledge, he's not Baconian in the sense of, right, knowledge is, is power and only power. That's right. Knowledge is first and foremost a good, but it is also a power. It is, it, 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 it is productive. He talks about goods leading to other goods. Yes. But not because you're seeking. It's, it's generative. It's generative, right? Yeah, there's a, fec- a fecundity to, yes. to knowledge. Uh, that that has a that can have a useful quality to it, just as as it ha- has a useless quality. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I was talking to a student over a beer last night here, and uh, you know he was asking me about how do you pursue this thing that's good in itself and completely useless, and still you know deal with the practicalities of life, earn a living, support a family. I thought it was a great question, but I, I encouraged him to pursue the complementarity of a techne in addition to his art. That is, every hmm. everybody who's getting a liberal arts education should also have a trade. Uh, do you think that's helpful, if not essential? And what what is the place of techne? Because you guys do a lot of stuff with your hands. You guys do a lot of stuff at Wyoming Catholic out out in the sticks. You learn about horses. You learn about I don't know all this stuff that might not necessarily bear safety, bear safety, yep. right, <laughs> right. So, what's the place of a, of a complementary techne with the arts? It might be another antidote to that angelic imagination. Oh yeah, you know, uh, to that to that tendency of of the liberal arts or at least some, some practitioners of the liberal arts to be so abstracted from from the body uh, that they're just they're just focusing in on in on the mind and right and it's, while it's humbling it's humbling yeah exactly no, it's, it's 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 very humbling and it puts us in contact with uh, this really this real facet of who we are as human beings which is embodied and and also practical and creators of things right the, that, that techne is, you know, like we make, right, we make things. We have we have skills, and we take pleasure. We take pleasure in those in those skills too. Yeah. Uh, and I think that from you know, our perspective, we would say those things are good and useful, but they are also pursued liberally here. There is actually there's a, a way of liberally pursuing a techne. Yeah. Of liberally pursuing a skill simply for the good of the skill itself. Right. 
And again, it's the skill, like knowledge, yeah. is fecund. It's productive of other of, of other things. So it leads to those other things, but it can be pursued liberally. Yeah, even Christ himself is a technician, right? They like he's a they they ask him, you know, isn't this the son of the right the carpenter? The carpenter. Yeah, it, which is a joke, I think, in scripture because they say, "Quia ses filius fabri." Isn't this the son of the maker, architectanos? Isn't this the mm. son of the maker? It's like, yeah, it's the mm. son of the he is the son of the maker. Yeah, but I was, I was, yeah. uh, we were interviewing uh, another uh, guest uh, a while ago, and and he says Christ is a worker in the sense that he he would have learned a trade from Joseph. You know, while having the beatific vision. So you could imagine him like looking at a, you know, a plank of wood and, and then seeing the grains in it and saying to himself, yeah, I did a, did a pretty good job with this one, you know, and then learning yeah. how to plane it or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe we could go back to those Puritans. Because I think one of the things that the Puritans do give is that, that sense of the dignity of work. Yeah. Which gets very much downplayed in the tradition. You know, in, in the liberal arts tradition in particular, if you look mm-hmm. at Plato and Aristotle, they're pretty dismissive towards people who yeah, who are making things with their hands because those people aren't, they're not understanding the forms, uh, for, for Plato at least, mm-hmm. right? uh, they're, or they're, they're, they're merely preoccupied with the useful. Yeah. Uh, but this idea that work in itself has a nobility, has a dignity, thinking of like Paradise Lost and, sure. and Milton has, he depicts Adam and Eve, you know, and he specifically spends time depicting them working in the garden. Like part yeah. of their pre-fallen existence is to, is to work. And that's something that comes up in Peeper as Without well. Without toil. Without toil. That's right. Yeah. It's a delight. Uh, it's a joy. Um, and they are, and they, and they are, they're working in perfect, in perfect harmony there. Yeah. Uh, and it's uh, connected to the natural world. So the after the fall, there. Adam is told that by the sweat of his brow, yeah. he's going to work. So work is going to become burdensome and difficult. But basically work, he's going to be working for the dirt. He's going to be working for gold. Like dirt is going to be his end. Work is going to be his end. And then he's going to find himself in dirt. In dirt. Yeah. Uh, so it's sort of a reversal of order. He finds himself... Uh, instead of looking up, you know, speaking to God in the cool of the night in wonder, he's now looking down toward his dirt that he will soon be, you know, enjoying a nice dirt nap in. Uh, but that sort of mirrors, in a way, this modern idea of work for work's sake and working without a talos, working, working to death, literally. Yeah, that that might be one of the consequences of the fall or at least one of the consequences that we are disposed to as human beings is yep. to fall into that trap of you know, of work of work without work mm-hmm. and yeah in in, in larger basis of culture people are, you know he says specifically i don't want to go back to a, the world uh in which we denigrated work yeah we don't want to do that right but what he's seeing in in the post-war world is this the, the totalitarian uh, nature of work yeah, the sense of work as a kind of, of a kind of all-consuming tyrant mm-hmm. which will take over take over one's life yeah yeah so your students here are actually working a ton in the sense that they have to walk a mile every night to get back to their dorms they yeah, gotta they you know hike out in nature and freeze and learn how to deal with horses and livestock and everything do you think that sort of hard work really tends toward complementing the liberal. We hope, we hope so. We hope so. I think it, I think it does. I think we see the fruits of it in the classroom. Um, in that sense that the, what they, what they experience out say, in the back country or uh, with horses, uh, even when they're in the horsemanship program, gives them a, a richness of experience that helps them that deepens their appreciation of the great books. You go out there with them? Um, not yet. No, I haven't. Do, do some faculty? Sometimes they do. Okay. Yeah, yeah, they do sometimes. Um, we have a Latin trip. Wow. In which the students go with one of our Latin professors, and they're supposed to only speak Latin the entire time. <laughs> That's great. I've been told it's a very silent trip. But <laughs> 
Very good. Well, I've, I've been impressed just being here and seeing, um, one, the happiness of students. Yeah. They are quite happy. And I think that yeah, has to, do, I mean, may, I mean, there's probably many reasons for it, but nobody has a cell phone. You guys have a strict technology policy. Tell us what that's all about, the benefits of not walking around glued to a screen. Yeah. So I think that also comes back to this, to this idea of, of the incarnation, mm. right? That, that there's a way in which the screens are, you know, become this barrier between us and an incarnate reality. And we long for incarnate reality. We long for that direct encounter, encounter with it. Yeah. And then that's part of the reasons that our screens and our phones are making us so unhappy. And so we take that away from the students. Uh, they're allowed, they're allowed laptops, but they're, but they're not allowed cell phones. We take those phones away from them. And then suddenly they're confronted with the real and yeah. and that can be very scary and it can be overwhelming. Uh, yeah. The real is not a very it's not always a very safe thing, but it's also profoundly fulfilling, right? And I think it adds yet yeah, it adds to their it adds to their sense of joy. Uh, it also adds I think increases that that focus in on the other person as person, you know, their incarnational reality too, because they're you know you have to communicate. It's so Directly. true. I've They're noticed right that students here will look at you. Yes. Yeah, they will. Yeah, I've, uh, that that was one of the things that uh, that surprised me the most when yeah. I first started teaching here was just, yeah. yeah, the students would come up to me and talk to me directly. Right. Yeah, and, and look me in the eye and sit next to me at lunch and ask me direct questions uh, in this. You know, it's very, it's a very communal uh, environment mm-hmm. like the, the that friendship there and that Aristotelian sense runs yeah. really deep. It seems like everything is an occasion from the nature to the people in front of you. Everything is an occasion for wonder, for admiratio. That's right. Like the something's like yeah. gateway, little gateways into the divine. Yeah, and wonder at the beginning of wisdom for for Plato, yeah. Aristotle, and Aquinas, and uh, for the whole for the whole tradition, and that wisdom being uh, a good that is foundational to our happiness, and uh, so so I think that that whole that whole environment in which we are striving to dispose them towards wonder, wonder that seeks after wisdom, is is a part of uh, yeah enriching enriching their lives and contributing ultimately to their to their happiness. Yeah. Just as the great books are also, we hope contributing mm-hmm. to their happiness as well. Mm-hmm. Just as I would think the Miller's tale and, and being able to appreciate the Miller's tale would also contribute in the, in the end to one's happiness. Indeed. Well, so mm-hmm. now I, what I have to do is go back and read more Jane Austen <laughs> and learn to appreciate <laughs> Jane Austen. And then, you, you will judge my character. That's right. Yes, you will rise in my estimation. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Can't That's wait. That's right. Thank Good. you, Dr. Schubert. This is uh, beautiful. Thank you for... Thank you. If you would like to learn more, and I do mean more, visit magnusinstitute.org today. This is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved. See you next time.